Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Power Hour podcast. We've got a great lineup, so let's get started. Good morning, everyone. I'm Bill Miles with the Hilton Head Island Bluffton Chamber of Commerce. And we're pleased to be back with you today with our ever popular our Teletown Hall Power Hour Fall Series. You know, back when we paused during the summertime, it was our hope that when we restarted our Power Hour Teletown Hall this fall, that COVID wouldn't need to be part of the conversation. And then we have the Delta variant. I did do some uh, reading this morning and I saw in the New York Times that uh, there is some positive news regarding the Delta variant. And so I'm somewhat optimistic with, with what I did read. You know, as we all know, facts and information remain exactly what we need to know. And it's a, extremely important that we have that as we move through the pandemic. From the beginning, our mantra has been facts over fear, and that is as relevant today as it was in 2020. Our headlines and social media feeds are flooded with information, but it's challenging to know what's factual and what's actually hype. We're here today to cut through the clutter and hear the latest updates on a variety of topics straight from the source. There's a lot happening in Washington, D.C. these days, from infrastructure bills to workforce and economic recovery challenges. And here to kick off today's fall series for us is one of the country's most passionate and knowledgeable small business advocates. And he's also a leader who's a strong track record of getting things accomplished in Washington. Tom Sullivan is the Vice President of Small Business Policy for the United States Chamber of Commerce. Day in and day out, I can tell you that he works tirelessly in support of the small business owners and their employees. His background prior to his time at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Tom served under President George W. Bush as the highest ranking government official charged with advocating for the needs of small businesses before government and Congress. As Chief Counsel for Advocacy at the U.S. Small Business Administration, he was directly involved in more matters, over 100 regulatory matters and legislative issues, testified frequently before Congress, and was a spokesman on economic conditions and entrepreneurship. Tom, I know it remains a busy time for you, and we appreciate you taking a moment to talk with us today. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our good friend from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Tom Sullivan. Oh, thank you, Bill. Um, I do apologize in advance. We are blessed to have Hilton Head uh, humidity this morning, so I have a little bit of a, uh, a towel here that I'll uh, wipe some of the, the uh, perspiration off at, throughout the program, so I apologize. I'm going to share my screen just so I don't get off track, if that's okay. Um, let's see. Okay, I'm not going to share my screen. Um, Evidently, after 18 months. Oh, there we go. There we go. Uh, there is the presentation. And primarily, there's just four or five slides, and it's just to keep me on track. Bill was nice enough to uh, explain that I, I am fairly passionate, and one of the consequences of that passion sometimes is I go down rabbit holes. So, so let's just uh, go right into it. If we could have the next slide, that would be great. So first of all, let's let's uh, let's look a little bit backwards uh, before we get into how the conditions are, are doing right now in the economy. Uh, from from uh, 
from a retrospective view, I, I think it's worth at least noting that the Hilton Head Bluffton Chamber of Commerce, along with 1,600 chambers of commerce all across the country, worked together to get aid to small business immediately after the start of the pandemic. And in, in what is generally considered a hyper-partisan environment, it really is truly impressive that seven laws, all designed to help small business, were passed in 12 months. So that's just kind of a, a quick retrospective of some bipartisan activity that both Bill and his team and thousands of other chambers of commerce teams, and of course, the business membership and their advocacy before Congress deserves some credit for. Uh, over that time, uh, SBA, the Small Business Administration, uh, dispersed over a trillion dollars through its disaster loan program and the Paycheck Protection Program uh, since 18 months ago. Uh, now, if, if you shift towards the present day, now that these um, these disaster aid programs have run their course, we now are working to make sure that the closure of those programs are done responsibly. And let's not forget a number of small businesses still have to receive forgiveness for those loans. And we are working with SBA to try to have that process go as smoothly as possible. Next slide, please. Now, this, this, this is actually a, uh, a line chart of a weekly Census Bureau survey. It actually surveys over 885,000 small businesses every week, and they've been doing so since the start of the pandemic. Although I don't go back that far because uh, at that point, it, it's very difficult to read. But what this, this line graph shows is the worker shortage. And this is a good place to start because there's so much of uh, our attention at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and I know certainly, Bill, your, you and your team's attention is at really getting at how to solve the workforce shortage. One piece of that has been to end the supplemental federal unemployment. That was just actually this week. Uh, it, it ended in many states. We actually are very, very pleased that uh, the 33 states that could have used American Rescue Plan um, funds to extend federal supplemental unemployment chose not to. And that actually, I think, will bode well nationally as well as in South Carolina to try to bring folks back into the workforce. I don't mean to overstate that one criteria, that one ingredient, the, um, the job hesitancy has many different ingredients in it, but that federal supplemental unemployment was one ingredient that we worked very hard to, uh, to, to get uh, people back into workforce. So this, this snapshot here just shows the, the workforce challenges that small businesses are facing. Um, if you look to present day, because this chart only goes through the middle of July, um, the bad news is that it's actually gotten a little bit worse. It's either steady or it's gotten a little bit worse. We're hoping that with students going back to school, that will uh, help 
folks come back into the workforce, but we won't know that till two or three weeks from now uh, under this sur same survey sample. If we can get the next slide, please. Uh, we measure uh, 10 index questions uh, from small business every quarter. Uh, and as you can see, obviously, uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, took a sharp hit to small businesses, uh, but we're, we're ticking back up there. Um, and we will release our next uh, quarter's numbers in two weeks, uh, but things are slowly recovering. Now, there are some headwinds. One of those major headwinds are workforce shortages. Another headwind are supply, supply chain challenges. And the third uh, and fairly important headwind that we're uh, that I'll get into a little bit about our lobbying activities is inflation. So those three ingredients are contributing to a slowing of the return to that upward trajectory that we saw in the first quarter immediately pre-pandemic. But as you can see from our, our index, we're slowly getting back up there and that's very encouraging. Next slide, please. All right, so this is actually the best news of the entire deck. Um, while we realize certainly that there are parts of the small business economy that are still struggling and we wanna do everything possible to help those businesses, this is a snapshot that compares the recovery of the Great Recession on the right compared to the recovery from a small business startup perspective now, uh, which is on, on the left. The, the, the quick explanation of these two charts, if you look at the, the chart on the right, it took over 10 years to get startup activity back at the pre-recession levels. And it only took a few months to actually get back to pre-COVID startup uh, levels. So these, these measure both likely non-employers and likely employers. Now the likely non-employer, the red dotted line, would be a little bit deceiving because if you get laid off from your business and you have to put food on your table, it's a little bit difficult to spin that as a positive situation where you really have no choice but to try to make money uh, by, by yourself uh, as a non-employer. The, really, uh, the, the, the line to really focus on is that dotted gray line. We are able, census is able to uh, measure likely employers. That means that not, you're in the type of business that is likely to, to grow from employee size. And as you could see that likely employer trajectory on the way up is really, really encouraging from a small business perspective. Um, in the first several months, that was primarily uh, logistics and delivery services. Because when you think about it, you know, Uber Eats and Amazon can only deliver so much stuff when everybody's working at home. Um, and so the entrepreneurs really jumped into that uh, sector and really took off and did very well. That has evolved into a, um, uh, into a trajectory of small businesses that are having increased sales channels through platforms like Etsy and Shopify. We see the biggest growth in those business sectors um, 
since the beginning of the pandemic. And again, very encouraging from a job growth and small business growth perspective. Next slide, please. All right, so let's get at what, what is keeping us busy trying to advocate for small business right now. Well, actually, it's, it's really simple uh, and highlighted in red here. Uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, did us a tremendous favor uh, last week when she separated out the three and a half trillion uh, stimulus legislation uh, with the infrastructure modernization legislation. Thanks to, uh, thanks to the insistence of a group of several bipartisan co uh, members of Congress in the House, they call themselves the Problem Solvers Caucus. They uh, forced Speaker Pelosi to call for a September 27th vote on infrastructure modernization. Um, that legislation is critically important to the business community and has been supported by the small business community for several years. This vote that uh, Speaker Pelosi has agreed to schedule is an up and down vote. No amendments of the Senate passed infrastructure modernization legislation and the US Chamber of Commerce with our partners uh, like Bill and his team and, and several thousand chambers of commerce across the country are very supportive of this legislation. Now, what are we opposed to? Well, we're opposed to the three and a half trillion dollar uh, Democrat Bush stimulus legislation. Why are we opposed? We're opposed because the way they pay for it is through tax hikes. Now, they, the proponents of this legislation say, well, no small businesses are going to be affected. And they changed that to, well, maybe only 3% of small businesses are going to be affected, which actually is close to a million small businesses. And as many of us know, it's easy to be very skeptical uh, when, when they first start out and say no small businesses are going to be affected, then they admit that, oh, well, maybe just 3%, which is actually over a million small businesses. And then they say, yes, and we're actually doubling the capital gains rate, which by itself drives investors away from investing in small businesses. And, and that isn't even acknowledged by the proponents of this legislation. So we are doing everything possible at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, along with our Chamber of Commerce partners around the country, to oppose this $3.5 trillion stimulus legislation. Now, does that mean there's anything in this legislation that different chambers of commerce haven't supported? Of course there are. But this isn't the way to do it. It is, it, it is not helpful to have Congress jam through on a um, on an exemption to the filibuster rules in the Senate, hyperpartisan legislation that has this much of spending. And we've talked about kind of the workforce challenges and the headwinds that small businesses are facing right now. Remember, there are three headwinds primarily supply chain disruptions, workforce shortages, and inflation. That last piece, inflation. You pump three and a half trillion federal dollar stimulus into the economy and predictions are that inflation will just go out of control, which means stronger headwind, slower growth for small business. That's another reason why we're opposed 
to this three and a half trillion dollar uh, spending legislation. So this will proceed through the House in the month of September, and we're going to be fighting it every uh, part of the way. We need information on its specific bill has an impressive team. It's working with us. Happy to get you information. Last slide, please. So uh, where where do we go for resources? And this is something that I'm really proud to work with Bill and, and others on is that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is the world's largest business advocacy organization. And our core strength has been lobbying. We weren't so good about giving information to businesses on how they can uh, improve operations. And uh, I, we used to say that, you know, we could tell you how, how to convince Congress how to lower taxes, but if someone needed help actually doing their taxes, we wouldn't know where uh, to direct them. And that changed in COVID. Uh, during the pandemic, we heard from so many small businesses about needing access to resources and translation of the complexities of all of these federal programs. We shifted, we pivoted just like so many small businesses have had to pivot. And we, we, we really focused in on being an educational resource, both to chambers of commerce and directly to small businesses. These are some of the examples of uh, the guides that are available, not only through us, but through many of your local uh, chambers of commerce. That middle uh, publication the, uh, that is titled CO, C-O, that is our primary small business digital platform um, that is located at growwithco.com. Uh, it's been a tremendous resource to get information directly to chambers and small businesses. And that concludes my, my formal presentation. Happy to take questions uh, from you, Bill, or from your membership. Tom, thank you for that update. We really appreciate that. And we do have some questions for you this morning. Uh, the first one's coming from Ted. And Ted is asking, what are some of the creative ways businesses and communities around the country are tackling the workforce issues? Well, Bill, thank, thank you for the, for the question. Um, First of all, the, the, the bad news, and this is analogous to when businesses are desperate for a loan, because a lot of our banker friends tell us the worst time to actually apply for the loan is when you actually desperately need it. And the same thing applies to workforce, is that there is this term, a lot of the larger businesses use this term that are blessed to have human resource specialists as part of their team. They call it talent pipeline. It's, it's basically the idea of the best time to be searching for talent is when you're fully staffed and you actually don't need anybody and you keep that. I remember one of my first jobs, my boss kept a little index card uh, in her purse and she, on that index card, she had listed all the people she interacts with all the time up in Congress who if they were ever looking for a job, she would want to hire them. Now, that's not as formal as a lot of businesses look at talent pipeline management, but it, it's kind of the rudimentary way that a lot of folks have approached this. So what about now? What if, what if you don't have that luxury of, um, uh, of having a, a pipeline? Well, what we're hearing, Bill, from a lot of our, our members are um, 
looking at the translation of how you're advertising for jobs. So we've heard a lot about the, the difference of if you're looking for low skill, how do you articulate that? If you're looking at, um, at a mid-level management, are you advertising a per hour rate? Because what we hear is if you're looking for an assistant manager at a restaurant, which is uh, certainly a very valuable position these days, traditionally, those are looked at as a per hour job. But many of the folks who are interested in applying view themselves as above a per hour salary and want to see what that equates to from an annual compensation salary perspective. So little things like that about trying to personalize um, are, are helpful. And then Bill, last but certainly not least, what, what we found from our small businesses, and I'm sure it's the same in the Hilton Head uh, area, and that is retail job hiring. Uh, and, and I say retail job hiring uh, with, with really that picture of Jeff Good, who's a restaurateur in, in Mississippi, who greets everyone, as, every family that comes into his restaurant, he greets. And instead of asking what they'd want for an appetizer, he asks them if anybody in their family is looking for a job. And then he pulls out uh, the job brochures that he carries with him and hands them to the families and says, hey, look, this is a great place to work. I'll take your appetizer orders in a minute. But while you're, before you study the menu, why don't you study these brochures about how great of a place this is to work? And my, my personal phone number is, is on there. Call me and I'd love to interview anyone in your family who's interested in working here or any of your neighbors. So that retail component is really an advantage that a, large, a lot of the larger businesses don't have. Tom, thank you for that. I'm sure that uh, actually I'm confident that before in the, in the, the end of the day, uh, some of our businesses will be using that uh, same method you just talked about. So thank you for that tip. We have another question for you, and it's coming from Chris. And Chris is act, asking, when do you expect supply chain issues getting back to normal? Uh, Chris, I, you deserve an honest answer, especially because uh, Bill Miles asked it after Christmas. Uh, we're, okay. we're seeing orders coming in uh, and, and businesses that are, are, are planning for supply chain challenges all the way through the holiday season, which is, uh, on the one hand, a wake-up call to be thinking about what your business needs in the winter season. And the other is kind of the grim reality is that a lot of these ripples in the supply chain uh, are just... Um, not gonna be resolved until after the holidays. Now, I, I don't mean to say that, that the sky is falling here, but I, I do want to present a warning. And that is that the, the federal stimulus that has, is already in the economy and thank goodness has saved an amazing amount of small businesses. It has distorted a lot of the traditional economics. One of the things we're really fearful of at the US Chamber is you pump three and a half trillion additional dollars into the economy, how does that distort things like workforce, like inflation, and like 
quite frankly, supply chains from a global competitiveness perspective. So we're, we're fairly concerned about that. And we're, we're certainly looking at the horizon after the holidays to see supply chains normalize uh, around the world after we defeat the reconciliation package. All right, Tom, thank you for that. One more question for you this morning. And this question is coming from Melissa. And Melissa is asking, will the, uh, actually, what's the biggest concern you're hearing among small businesses right now? If you could boil that down to one, I know there are many. Right now, the absolute top concern is getting workers. I would certainly agree with that. And that's, uh, that's what we hear here as well, Tom. Tom, while we were, we were talking, I, I got a message from our, uh, our RBC Heritage Tournament Director, Steve Wilmot, and um, you know, he was calling you out on that Kiowa shirt that you have on today. And so we think you need to be wearing a Hilton Head Island shirt and an RBC Heritage shirt. So you can expect to receive one or two of those. And uh, hopefully our community comes together to get you outfitted in the right, in the right shirt and the right style sporting that Hilton Head Island brand. I would love it. And, and you sniffed me out and I would be honored to, to wear the swag. Thank you. You're a good man. And Tom, I look forward to seeing you in DC in a couple of weeks. Thank you for all you're doing on behalf of small business and look forward to connecting again real soon. Thank you, Bill. Safe travels. Thank you. All right. That was Tom Sullivan with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And we're always thrilled to have him with us. We're going to transition now to uh, looking at some healthcare issues. We know that every day we're seeing reports of hospitals around the nation reporting increasing numbers of COVID patients. So we thought it would be important to hear from our local healthcare providers in Southern Beaufort County to find out where we stand on hospitalizations, uh, where to get vaccinated or boosted or tested, and how our hospital staffs are, are doing with the rising challenges. Here to talk about that with us this morning is certainly no stranger to anyone in our community, and that's Jeremy Clark, the market CEO for Hilton Head Regional Healthcare. Jeremy, thank you. Both the Hilton Head Hospital and Coastal Carolina Hospitals are part of your group, and uh, we look forward to uh, hearing your update. And thank you for doing a tremendous job leading our hospitals, and a, a great uh, salute to your staff as well. Great, Bill. Thank you. Thank you very much for the kind words. Can you hear me okay this morning? Yes, we do. Excellent. Well, it's uh, it's good to be back with you. It's good to be back with everyone in the community this morning. And uh, these are certainly challenging times. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak directly to our community uh, about what's going on uh, in our in our hospitals and in our uh, community locally. To start off, I'll give everyone an, an idea of what we're seeing locally at Hilton Head Hospital and Coastal Carolina Hospital this morning. We have a total of 44 COVID positive inpatients uh, in our two hospitals with 10 of these being in the ICU. Um, we have seen our COVID census rise significantly uh, throughout the month of August after holding uh, really under five total patients in uh, from March through July. So we've seen a significant increase uh, and a spike over the last month. I want everyone to know that this is truly the toughest it's been uh, through the entire pandemic. Uh, this is, we, right now we have more COVID patients uh, in our two hospitals this morning than we ever have before. Uh, that higher than our, our winter peaks earlier this year and our summer peak from last year. Um, the patients we have are also sicker. Uh, we have more patients in our ICU uh, with COVID than we've ever had before either. So these are creating um, very challenging times. 
Um, and, and compounding it is the fact that these patients are younger, generally younger than they've been in the past as well. So again, very challenging situation uh, for our hospitals and, and for our community. But it really doesn't have to be this way. Um, this is largely preventable. Uh, I want you to know that the vast majority, around 80% of the COVID positive patients that we have hospitalized are not vaccinated. Getting the vaccine is the number one thing that you can do to keep yourself, your family, and our community safe during these times. So if you have not received your vaccine yet, please do so. It's not too late. Uh, just as a reminder, anyone over age, over age 18 is eligible to receive this, this free vaccine. And uh, everyone over the age of 12 is eligible for the Pfizer vaccine. Just recently, you may have seen the news, the Pfizer vaccine received full approval from the FDA. So if you're interested in receiving this vaccine, please go to the website vaccines.gov. It's very easy to find a location that's giving uh, the different types of vaccines in our community. You know, if, you, if you think back eight months ago, there was an issue with supply of the vaccine. There was a very limited supply. That's not the case today. There are opportunities throughout our community to receive this vaccine in a, in a very easy um, in a very easy manner, very easy process. And we're incredibly appreciative to the local pharmacies uh, and organizations that are, that are offering this vaccine to the public. The CDC is also recommending that anyone who is severely immunocompromised uh, receive a booster shot um, of either Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine at least 18 days, I'm sorry, at least 28 days after your second dose. You can get this booster shot through the same process, going online, finding a, a provider, uh, making an appointment, and, and then going in. So it's easy to do. I would recommend everyone please get the vaccine if you have not done so already. Um, inside our hospitals, uh, again, these are certainly challenging times, but the work our, that our team is doing is incredibly rewarding. So as I mentioned previously, you know, we've never seen uh, more COVID patients than we're seeing today. Um, and these patients are sicker than we've seen in the previous, uh, in the previous spikes. We have made the tough decision to restrict visitation inside our organizations um, in an effort to try to keep our, our colleagues, our physicians, our patients safe uh, and, and keep them allowing, continue to allow them to take great care of, uh, of our patients. We're well stocked in all of our personal uh, protective equipment. We're well stocked in ventilators, so there's no concern there. Uh, we are still performing elective surgeries, uh, but we are working with our surgeons and patients to modify our OR schedules, our operating room schedules as we need to, so that we can continue to provide safe and high quality care to all of our patients. And we just really have so many of our patients, uh, so many of our colleagues right now who are going above and beyond. Uh, it's just, it's really inspiring. We're seeing, we're seeing people uh, work outside of their departments just to lend an extra set of hands to help out. We're seeing uh, our nurses who normally work day shifts switching to night shift. Uh, so that they can help out as well in just a different manner. So it's it's really um, it's really awesome to see everyone really coming together to to take care of our patients and take care of our community. So I just cannot say enough about our colleagues, our nurses, our physicians, our techs, our therapists, really everyone who is out there providing great care to our patients every single day. I mean, they are truly the heroes in this. They are out there, you know, fighting every day to take care of our patients. They've been fighting this fight for about eighteen months now. Um, they're tired, but they're still fighting. And they come in every day uh, to provide care for our patients, to provide care uh, for our community and to keep our community safe. So if you see one of them, please thank them. They are doing an awesome job. Uh, and it's, it's truly an honor for me to, to work with them. 
to wrap up, Bill, again, you know, I want you to know that our, our hospitals remain ready. Um, and, and I also want to encourage everyone on this call uh, to get the vaccine, to encourage your friends and family to get the vaccine. Again, it's the number one thing that you can do to keep yourself safe uh, and to keep your family safe and to keep our community safe. Uh, and, and let us return to all the things that, uh, that we enjoy doing. So these are challenging times, uh, but I know that we have the team and I know that we have the community uh, to, to overcome them. So I, Bill, I'm appreciative of you and the chamber for your leadership. I'm appreciative of all of our lo uh, local and state officials for their leadership during this uh, situation and uh, appreciate everyone's support for our, for our caregivers. So Bill, I'll turn it back over to you and I'll, I'll try to answer any questions that you have. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much. And our first question goes right along to your team. And uh, Melinda is asking, what, the what can the community do to further support your wonderful team at both hospitals? You know, uh, words of thanks are always appreciated. Uh, you know, notes of thanks in here. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't been in a hospital yet where food was not appreciated either. Uh, but, but really, it's the recognition, it's the thanks. Uh, you know, you know, many of our caregivers in the community, when you see them, thank you, thank them. Uh, I cannot stress enough how hard they're working to keep our patients and our entire community safe right now. Jeremy, if, if someone wanted to bake cookies or do something along food wise, maybe sponsor a lunch for your nurses, what would be the best way to go about that? Um, if, if it's someone on this call, um, you know, we can get some information to you, Bill, if they if they reach out to the chamber, they can also uh, call uh, to our hospital, maybe talk to someone in HR as a point of contact as well. But um, we just reach out to us and, and we'll find a way to, to take to get it to the people who need it. So thank you. All right. Great. Thank you. Another question coming from Mary. And Mary is asking, does the hospital have any plans to once again uh, have drive through testing? Yeah, right now we are not planning on doing drive through uh, community testing. You know, we're very fortunate in our community that DHEC has a site that they that they man seven days a week. Uh, the Tanger Two outlets kind of on the on the Bluffton Parkway side of things. So that's open seven days a week, I believe, about eight hours a day. Uh, and they are providing uh, appointments or um, walk-ups uh, testing there. So right now we're really focusing our resources on providing care to the uh, to the numerous patients that we have in our hospitals. All right, thank you. Alexander's asking if there are any testing sites available on Hilton Head Island or only the ones at the Tanger outlets. The only DHEC site is uh, at, uh, at Tanger, but they're also doing some, some testing, I believe at, the, uh, at their Bluffton, um, site and maybe Dr. Kelly can can comment on that. There are other places to get tested on Hilton Head Island in um, uh, in various physician offices and urgent care centers, but the only DHEC sites I'm aware of are in Bluffton. And our final question for you today is Art is asking about the physicians at the hospitals about uh, them being vaccinated. Are they vaccinated? Uh, they they are largely vaccinated. You know, we are strongly encouraging uh, the vaccination for all of our physicians and medical staff, and uh, they've done a great job at, at complying and getting the vaccine and, and really believing in its safety uh, and its efficacy. Jeremy, thank you. And just as he mentioned, if uh, anybody's listening today and would like to sponsor a lunch or, or something uh, for our nurses at the hospital and also our administrative team at the hospital, uh, we'd be delighted to coordinate that. So reach out to us here at the chamber and we'll certainly coordinate it. Jeremy, thank you for your support and uh, uh, continue, continue the great work you all are doing. Great, Bill. Thank you for your support. And please focus on the nurses and the physicians and the techs and not the administrators. We're fine. All right. Well, thank you. Next, we'll transition uh, uh, talking a little bit about what's new with the, the 
what new variant actually will be coming around after the Delta? And uh, is it something we need to be concerned about as a community um, here in the Low Country? Also uh, wondering about vaccinates, our vaccination rates rising in our area and what's the latest information on boosters? Here to give us that latest news on the research and medical uh, front is our favorite epidemiologist here in South Carolina, and that's Dr. Jane Kelly with South Carolina DHEC. Dr. Kelly, welcome back, and we're delighted to have you back with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I know it's so important to get the word out. Uh, if it's okay, I'd like to share my screen, and I can send you these slides later so you have them available to share with others. Um, hang on just a second. I'm going to go back to the beginning. There we go. Uh, here is our epidemiology curve, the number of cases per day. Um, I, we've been traditionally starting with a slide similar to this. I've drawn a red line across the middle because I wanted to indicate that the surge that we are having right now is at about the same height as the surge we had back in January. So this summer is remarkably different. It's not as though, oh, we had a surge last summer too, and then it went away. It is much, much higher. Um, in fact, today, uh, we've now had several days reporting more than 5,000 cases in a single day. In contrast, back in May and June, we were reporting routinely fewer than 100 cases a day. And the other big change is that more than 95% of these new cases are the Delta variant. And the indications of this, the implications, excuse me, of this, just as you just heard from the previous speaker, is not just the number of cases. It is the use of hospital beds, ICU beds, ventilators, and the concern that even among people who do survive and are discharged, that they may have chronic medical conditions stemming from their illness, and that we know that we've got multiple hospitals that are experiencing a staff shortage. The other concern is that other states, for example, Louisiana, which is dealing not only with a surge, but with weather considerations, losing power, they are transferring patients to other states. And South Carolina may be asked to accept some of those patients as well. In terms of vaccination, we're still not at, even at the 50% mark for the state as a whole. Only 40, about 48% of people age 12 and up in South Carolina have are fully vaccinated, meaning two weeks after their second dose of Pfizer or Moderna or two weeks after the Janssen vaccine. We're in a little bit better situation, Buford County, with about 63% of your population age 12 and above being fully vaccinated. What I'd like to spend my time with you today doing is to go through a few myths associated with vaccine, the myth that these vaccines are experimental, that most new infections are among the vaccinated, that vaccination itself is more dangerous than COVID-19 disease, that if you were previously infected, you don't need the vaccine, and that if we need boosters, then that must be a sign that the vaccine must not work. And lastly, that masks are not important in schools because they are. So let's do a little myth busting. EUA stands for emergency use authorization, not experimental use authorization. And the difference between an EUA and full FDA approval doesn't have to do with the science. They have to do the same phase three animal studies, phase three human studies. You know, they have the same need to prove efficacy and safety. The difference between the two is the months of follow-up. EUA, get, you have to have a minimum of two months follow-up to, to examine for safety considerations. That's not arbitrarily chosen. 
It's a minimum of two months because most complications from vaccines occur in the first six weeks. For full FDA approval, which is what the Pfizer vaccine has right now and which is pending for the Moderna vaccine, you need a minimum of six months. They pulled out the stops on doing this full approval. They had not just six months of, of uh, safety information on people in the phase three studies. They also have more than six months worth of information on people who were vaccinated under the EUA. So all that information from uh, the end of December through July, that's what was submitted to CDC, excuse me, to FDA. This other myth about the most of the uh, cases are among people who are vaccinated is absolutely untrue. Most cases, hospitalizations and deaths far and away are among those who are unvaccinated. And here's just the report for July uh, 2021. Yes, there have been some breakthrough cases, people who were fully vaccinated, but I'd like to point out how different that patient population is. The average age for people who were had a breakthrough case, meaning they were fully vaccinated, yet they contracted COVID-19. Among those who were hospitalized, the average age was 72. The average age among the people who were had a breakthrough case and died is 80. So in those individuals are older. They have a, a vast majority of them, more than 90% of them, have other comorbid conditions. And I just want to show you a slide from the Medical University of South Carolina. They have presented their data of the patients that they have hospitalized, and given not only among hospitalizations, ICU care, and ventilated. Again, they point out the vast majority of these individuals, in fact, are immunocompromised. And an example would be a patient who is an organ transplant recipient who has to take immunosuppressants to prevent rejection. So the fact that we're seeing breakthrough cases was never unexpected. No vaccine is 100%. But the people who are experiencing breakthrough cases far and away are individuals who are older, who have chronic medical problems, or who are immunocompromised. Breakthrough cases are rare. If you compare the total number of breakthrough cases for South Carolina compared to the over 2 million people who have been fully vaccinated, you can see it is far less than 1% of those individuals who are hospitalized or have severe disease from COVID-19. Now, what about the danger associated with disease versus vaccine? We've had over 630,000 deaths nationally from COVID-19 disease and more than 10,000 deaths in South Carolina. In contrast, we nationally have zero deaths from allergic reaction to vaccine. We have zero deaths from myocarditis associated with vaccine. There were three deaths from thrombosis with thrombocytopenia, that rare blood clot condition with low platelet count that was associated with the Janssen vaccine out of more than 14,000 doses given. So I'm not saying that there aren't some symptoms associated with receiving the vaccine, but it is a myth that people are dying from receiving this vaccine, other than those three deaths, at, which occurred at a time where doctors did not know about this syndrome and how to treat it. What about if you've already had COVID? Do you, is there benefit to getting the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, I'm gonna give you just a couple of examples, but there is more data to support this. Here's a, a study that was published earlier this month, excuse me, published August 6th. I was gonna say earlier this month, but it's September. And it compared Kentucky residents who had been infected with the virus in May and June in 2020 
and then reinfected May and June 2021 to those who were not reinfected. And that they found that people with prior infection, but who were unvaccinated, were more than twice as likely to get reinfected than those who had prior infection and were vaccinated. So vaccination does improve protection for people previously infected. Certainly if you're previously infected, you have a certain degree of immune response, but you can strengthen it with vaccine. I also wanna point out that this study was done before Delta was the prominent, predominant variant. An infection with a different variant with the original variant or the alpha variant may not protect you as well against Delta, but we do have evidence that vaccine will. This is a similar study to the Kentucky study, looking at a much greater number of people than the Kentucky study. Uh, again, examining the risk of, of being unvaccinated versus vaccinated. And again, found that the, those who were unvaccinated had five times more COVID-19 infections than those who were fully vaccinated and were much higher risk of hospitalization. So some of those breakthrough cases that we see they may be breakthrough and get the infection, but they're protected from going on to having severe disease, hospitalization. This is what a, a slide, I may have shown this in fact to you earlier this, uh, this year, because it, this shows evidence of variant sensitivity. Now I, I, I'm getting a little technical in the weeds, but let me, let me, I think I can explain this simply. The slide on the left, the graph on the left, where it says M12 positive, that means people who were infected 12 months ago. They had a positive, positive test 12 months ago, but they're not vaccinated. They looked at the blood to look at the antibodies, and not just any old antibodies, but specifically neutralizing antibodies for different variants. And that D614G, that's the original variant, and the alpha was the one from the United Kingdom, from Britain. And they found people with prior infection made some antibodies to those variants. That black bar, that horizontal bar, that indicates the average amount of neutralizing variant. But you can see for beta and for delta, they don't make enough neutralizing antibodies when you're infected a year ago, because those were different variants circulating. You look at the graph on the right, these are people who were infected 12 months ago who then got vaccinated. And you can see that they made antibodies to all of those variants. So Delta is a game changer. What is the story with this third dose COVID vaccine? What is going on with boosters? I wanna clarify that there's two different types of third doses. Right now, FDA has authorized an additional dose for people who are immunocompromised because they don't, didn't have a strong response to the original series. So that's again, people who have had organ transplant or maybe have an autoimmune condition where they're on immunosuppressive medications or cancer chemotherapy. They should get an additional dose. They don't need to wait. They can get their additional dose right now, as long as it's at least 28 days from their second dose. Booster doses are a different deal. A booster dose would be to boost the immunity for people who did respond to the original uh, two-dose series or one dose if they got Janssen, but now it's six or eight months later and their immunity is beginning to wane. There's some controversy about this. Do we really need to give a booster to everybody or only to some people? 
You know, the reason that three to four week spacing was originally chosen for Pfizer and Moderna was it, it was the minimum time frame. We we're trying to get people vaccinated as soon as possible. You know, there are lots of situations in which we give booster doses six months down the line. This complicated slide is just showing you on the top the pediatric immunization schedule. We give kids booster doses for hepatitis B, for you know, lots of different vaccines, because that's a that is a standard that you show your immune system a pathogen, a virus or bacteria vaccine, and then you show it to them again to make sure that the uptake is lasts longer. On the bottom part of the slide is the dosing for adult vaccines. Same thing, look at hepatitis B, get three doses. I think most people know tetanus, you need to get a booster every 10 years. So the fact that we need boost, we may need boosters with COVID-19 is certainly not a sign that the vaccines don't work. It's based on studies like this, looking at, okay, for all people, all the way on the left, how much does their immunity decrease? Well, this was after six months. Looks like, oh, well, immunity only decreased a little bit for everybody, but it decreased a little bit more for people older than 65. It decreased a lot for immunocompromised. So different vaccine recommendations based on other medical conditions. Booster vaccine is not FDA authorized at this time for the general public, just for the immunocompromised. They are looking at this. It's not a done deal yet. I know we've all seen the headlines that HHS is planning for booster doses. Good idea. We should plan ahead, make sure we've got enough vaccine in case everybody needs a booster. But should you get vaccinated, get your booster at six months, eight months, it is not clear yet. FDA and the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices are looking at that now. I would not recommend that anybody, unless you're immunocompromised, go out and get a booster dose right now. Last thing I wanna finish with is that the Delta variant does spread more easily, especially in indoor spaces when people are unmasked and unvaccinated. Um, this was a recent publication, the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report. You know, unfortunately, an elementary school teacher who was not vaccinated, who normally was masked, but she removed her mask at storytelling time with a group of kids, 12 out of 24 kids, 50% of that class became infected. Not just 50% had to quarantine, 50% of the class became infected. So the Delta variant spreads more easily. That's the most important thing to know about it. The other important thing to know is vaccines will work against the Delta variant. I always end with including my email address, kellyjm1 at dhec.sc.gov. You are more than welcome to email me directly if you've got a question that we don't cover today. Dr. Kelly, thank you. And are you on the tight time, a tight time schedule? No, I can. No, thank you for asking. No, I, this is my first time back. I'm sure there's some questions. I've got time to answer them. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, our first question is about people not being able to find rapid tests here locally. I know you probably don't know the local market. You might be able to have an answer for that, but I can also throw in for our listeners right now that uh, Burke's Main Street Pharmacy does have the rapid tests that they're doing in store and then also home kits for sale as well. Dr. Kelly, where else would, uh, would they find test kits? Yeah, I know that this is a problem. There are long waiting times for testing that, you know, a lot, many more people wanting to get tested and, and we want them to get tested as well. You can order home tests uh, via Amazon or, you know, whatever is your preferred uh, 
place to order online. Um, and those at-home tests are good tests. Uh, you just need to follow the directions correctly. But I'm sorry that I can't tell you any more on a, a local basis. I don't know. Well, thank you. And Calvin, thank you for asking that great question. Our next, uh, uh, next question is coming to us from Kristen. And Kristen is asking if there's any truth to females having fertility issues after getting vaccinated. Thank you for asking that. I, you know, I almost included those slides today, but then decided we might not have enough time. I'll do it next week. But I can say this. We now have data. When the vaccines were first released, of course, they weren't tested in pregnant women. So we couldn't really answer that question. But at this point in time, over 35,000 women who were either pregnant at the time of getting vaccinated or got pregnant shortly after vaccine, we have outcome studies on them. What happened during their pregnancy? What happened with in terms of delivery? If vaccine decreased fertility, you would expect to see more miscarriages. And in fact, studies with those 35,000 women, they did not have an increase in the number of miscarriages compared to a background rate. There are always a certain number of pregnancies that unfortunately end in miscarriage, but there was no increase in miscarriage. There's no evidence that vaccine is unsafe during pregnancy or when you're trying to get pregnant. And there's a huge advantage both to mother and to child. Pregnancy and COVID-19 disease are a bad combination. Pregnant women are more likely to end up in the intensive care unit with COVID. They're more likely to lose their babies. They're, and if they are able to carry their, uh, their pregnancy to term, uh, that baby is more likely to end up in the neonatal intensive care unit. So please, if you're, if you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant, please get vaccinated. All right, thank you for that answer. Next question is coming from Kimberly. And Kimberly is curious of the breakthrough cases, if there's a trend in the vaccine that they received. There is not. Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. It may seem that way sometimes because remember, Pfizer and Moderna were released much earlier than the Janssen vaccine. So some of those breakthrough cases are people who got vaccinated eight months ago. Um, as opposed to Janssen people who got vaccinated six months ago. So it, it can sometimes be uh, kind of misleading. Also remember that in South Carolina, people in nursing homes receive the Moderna vaccine. So some of our most vulnerable people who are the most likely to get breakthrough cases receive the Moderna vaccine because that was the plan with nursing homes. We, you know, we're just trying to make it uniform that one vaccine to nursing homes. So it may seem misleading, but there, there is no, if you take that into consideration, take age into consideration and duration of immunity, there is no increase in breakthrough associated with given vaccine. Dr. Kelly, thank you. We're running a little short on time and I'm yeah. hopefully going to assume that uh, you'll be kind enough as you have in the past that it, other questions that we have, we can submit those and, and you'll provide uh, answers back to us for our members. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, it's great to see you again, Dr. Kelly, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Talk to you next week. Look forward to it, thank you. All right, that was Dr. Jane Kelly. We thought it'd be important to hear from our municipalities on Hilton Head Island and in Bluffton on not only how they're handling the pandemics, but on other topics, topics as well. We'll be hearing from the town of Bluffton on our next Teletown Hall. And this week, we're fortunate to have uh, Hilton Head Island Mayor John McCann and Deputy Town Manager Josh Gruber joining us. Uh, Mayor McCann, welcome. Uh, nice to see you. And Josh, good to see you as well. 
Good morning, Bill. And first of all, thank you for putting us back together again. It's really appreciated along the way. Um, you know, I'm very thankful for the citizens, the visitors, and the businesses here that have gone to mass on their own without any mandatory mask ordinance. Uh, I think the public is a lot smarter than we give them credit for, and I thank them very much along the way. Um, as always, I thank Jeremy for his good advice and his input. Uh, we, we rely a lot on, on what Jer Jeremy has to say. And Dr. Kelly was the, one of the most excellent presentations we've heard so far. Took a lot of sting out of the misnomers as to what's going on. I thought her presentation was excellent, although it scared the hell out of me at the same time, okay? So it was there. Uh, Josh is now going to say a few words about what we're doing internally in town hall. Josh? Yes, sir. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, good morning, Bill. Good morning, everyone. Um, wanted to focus just quickly on the town's actions kind of in responding to um, a lot of the data that you heard from the last two speakers. And I think they did an excellent job of kind of covering what's going on right now here locally uh, and within the region in terms of the pandemic. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the reasons for why council uh, took action. But uh, the bottom line is that on August 17th, town council voted to adopt adopt a resolution uh, declaring a state of emergency within the town of Hilton Head, primarily in response to all of the information that you just heard from the last two speakers. What the effect of that state of emergency is, is it allows for two very distinct and specific actions. One, it allows us to uh, take steps to protect staff and public coming into town hall and town facilities. Uh, to require that they do wear masks uh, that is in compliance with the CDC guidelines that indicates that people in indoor settings uh, should be wearing masks. It also allows us to conduct meetings virtually. So similar to what you're doing with the town hall here, uh, we'll be able to conduct our town business virtually without having to have folks gather in large numbers uh, in an indoor facility. So the state of emergency on August 17th will remain in place until rescinded by the mayor or council at some point in time in the future. And as of right now, it is limited in its scope and applicability to only doing those two actions, requiring the wearing of masks uh, in town facilities and allowing us to conduct our meetings uh, uh, electronically. I'd like to speak, have a second bill to talk about the money that the town got from the federal government. Uh, we're, giving, we're allocating a million dollars of that money to the community foundation uh, to give grants to people that need that money in, on Hilton Head. We're also putting aside $400,000 for homeowners that live in, their, live in the house uh, to make minor repairs to the house uh, to make it more livable. Uh, the town is also taking almost $900,000 uh, to re do repairs in the town. And those repairs are to have metal detected on the way into the chambers, uh, to have a better communication system so we can Facebook out our meetings right away, to have better technology so we can get our meetings out to the public clear and right on time. But it's a lot of it. Town needs a lot of repairs, uh, not for the repair of the building, but for technology, um, on security here and things of that nature. Now, the other, the other part of the money we've got from the federal government, uh, there's about a million dollars that we're going into what we call the Patterson Track. It's over on Marshland. It's designed to build a park and to build homes with and very much like Habitat for Humanity uh, over in that area. 
there's nothing better than someone having sweat equity, having their own home when they're finished. So we think the habitat model is a very good model to have for that. And when we put a balance, a lot of the money we put in reserve, not knowing what's going to happen. But we put the money out there for use for the public, not use for the town, not use for any capital projects. But this is a publicly driven process along the way. Uh, with that, Josh is going to give you a quick update on the 278 Carta. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, we continue to hold uh, workshops with the public uh, and with uh, the South Carolina Department of Transportation in evaluating the information and proposals that they have brought forward uh, and also that the town is working on formulating with our own consultants. Uh, we have a number of meetings that are going to be coming up here in the future to talk about what those proposals look like, and we would encourage folks to kind of follow along and participate in that project uh, and in that process by making sure that you submit comments and sign up to speak at appropriate times during those meetings. And, and last but not least, um, we have three major parks here, Crossings Park, which is major, mainly baseball. Uh, we have the Chaplin Park, which is the biggest park we have. We have a park in the north end of the island, which used to be the Port Royal Planters Row, which is now the, the Mid-Island Park. Mid-Island Park is a big significance for us because it's not only the park, which is 105 acres, but it's the community around the park. We are very concerned about Northridge Plaza, Sea Turtle Marketplace, and uh, Port Royal Plaza. And we think by building this park, and, and rezoning and re-looking at the areas around it here, we can bring business back to the island and take those two, three parcels and bring them up to the quality that we expect and build to that island. The first, uh, record, the first reporting on the park would be in three weeks as to what the basic recommendations are from the beginning. We look at it, or I look at it as a passive park. We have gorgeous beaches, gorgeous golf courses, tennis courses, but we need a passive park somewhere where people can just go and relax and see nature. Um, and that's the direction that we're trying to lean towards. And I'm sure it will change by the end. Uh, with that, we'd be glad to take any questions. All right, thank you. Appreciate the update on the from the town of Hilton Head Island. And the uh, first question we have for you is coming from Susan this morning. And Susan's asking, what will future meetings at town hall look like? And uh, will also, will, will there be a code of conduct that is established for future meetings. Well, thank you, Susan. I can tell you in the short term, the meetings that are gonna be taking place here are gonna be conducted virtually, as we indicated, uh, with what's going on with the pandemic right now and the rate of transmission within the community. It's not a good idea to bring people together in an indoor facility. Uh, so again, we don't know how long that's going to last. That's gonna be kind of dictated by the uh, external circumstances and what's going on in the greater community as a whole. But at some point in time, we will be able to get back to in-person meetings. And we do have within our code specific rules of decorum that set forth the behavior and ability of people to participate in those public meetings. The trick with those are we have to strike a proper balance between allowing for public uh, input and public participation as part of the democratic process of those meetings, 
but also draw appropriate and clear lines as to when uh, it's appropriate to engage in conversation and when it's appropriate not to engage in conversation. And so what we're going to be working on at this point is coming up with a clear set of protocols that will outline, I think, better those uh, circumstances and the steps that we will go through to make sure that we can conduct orderly meetings uh, when we are in person with one another. And the other piece on that bill is that in our virtual meetings now, we're working on technology and a new system where we will accept calls on the topics as, as the meeting is going on. So we might be virtual, uh, but people should still be able to communicate with us and ask questions on the topics that we're talking about. Good. All right. Thank you. And uh, we're delighted to have both of you with us today. We're running just a little bit short on time. Uh, we do have some additional questions, but I'll get those to you later on. We'll provide answers back to, uh, to our listeners. But thank you both for joining us today. Great update. And uh, we look forward to full steam ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. All right. Impact on our property values and our real estate industry. The last year has had a, a, a wonderful um, uh, number of sales that has taken place. And with the average sales price of a home in our area, it's up, I believe, 27.7, almost 28% year to date. And the numbers, whole, number of homes sold is uh, up 40%. And I've also heard, not sure, and I'm sure our next speaker can clarify this, that the supply is actually down to about a month of inventory. And here to tell us more about that, uh, our red hot real estate market, and whether it's showing any signs of cooling off, is Gene Beck, the CEO of the Hilton Head Realtors Association. Gene, welcome, and it's great to see you this morning, and we're looking forward to your update. All right, great. Thanks very much, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity to hear to speak to our community about the real estate market, and you are absolutely right. It's been a red hot real estate market, and price and low inventory is what's making the real estate news these days. But I want to start with something else, too, that's probably important to some people on this uh, call, and that's the eviction moratorium. Uh, last week, the U.S. Supreme Court ended the CDC's uh, eviction moratorium, providing some much-needed relief uh, for many small housing providers facing some financial hardship that they've had over this past year. And, you know, no one wants to evict tenants. That's certainly not the goal of anything. But we also want to share with you today that there is assistance for both the tenants and the landlords through the South Carolina Housing Authority. So if anyone's in this situation, you can go to schousing.org. An assistance program is called SC Stay. But both the landlord and the tenant must work together to go to for that assistance. So again, that's um, the South Carolina Housing Authority, schousing.org, for assistance on um, tenants and available um, funding for you. Uh, next, I want to just kind of move a little more into our local real estate market. Let's talk about vacation homes. So that's certainly an, an area that impacts our community as well. And according to a recent study, a 2021 study that just came out from the National Association of Realtors on vacation home sales, 53% of vacation um, home buyers paid cash. Um, now, that's no surprise to our area. Many of our buyers pay cash. And with inventory as tight as it is, certainly the old adage, cash is king, is a plus in these many, many multiple offer situations. 
but I want to give you a little feel on the inventory that we're talking about. So let's look at Sea Pines. Sea Pines a resort area, certainly many vacation homes in there. Median price point is up 35.7%. Um, Closed transactions uh, year to date up 17.6%. But yesterday, as I prepared for our program today, I looked at the condo villa market. That's all I'm looking at, condo villa market in Sea Pines through the Hilton Head MLS, and there are six properties on the market. So six condos and villas available for sale in the Sea Pines Resort area. So uh, when we say inventory is tight, we're, we really mean there is tight inventory. And really on an average year, you would see anywhere from 20 to 30. So traditionally at the end of our summer season, uh, villa owners, that have their property on the short-term rental, uh, typically decide whether this time of the year, whether they wanna sell their investment or freshen it up again for the next season. And we're hopeful perhaps there might be some increase in inventory if those investors decide to sell at this point. So it's really the housing market that has driven this economy through the pandemic nationwide. And as the headlines have read, it has been a frenzy. Um, but let's remember the businesses that have been impacted by real estate, you know, and many of those are chamber members as well. You know, your insurance agent, your lawyers, your lenders, the home inspectors, the repairmen, the landscapers, and really the list goes on and on that when a home sells, many other businesses get impacted and including many of our local thrift shops. Uh, many of them receive goods from people that are moving, which is a certainly a positive in our community um, to assist them as well. Nationally, the medium home price is $359,900. Our local market as a region overall is about $400,000. But when you break it down by location, you look at Hilton Head, compared locally here, the Hilton Head and Bluffton market, we see a substantial difference. In Hilton Head, the medium price point for a single family home is $775,000 uh, compared to Bluffton, which is just a little under $371,000. So inventory is exceptionally low and buyer demand remains high. However, with inventory this low, we are going to start to see some closed transactions uh, slowing down in this market as we move towards the end of the year. You know, realtors are still very aware about the concerns that the sellers have with the COVID surge, as we've heard all about today, and continue to be diligent, respecting the seller's wishes as buyers come through their homes. Um, bottles of hand sanitizers are still very important for realtors to have in their pockets. But I do want to publicly thank all of our gated communities have worked with me so I can communicate out to our realtors the many different protocols that they have put in place um, as realtors not only are selling a home, but selling a lifestyle and, and touring the different uh, communities and their clubhouses. Um, and many have been very cooperative with us and we certainly wanna thank them for that. And we'll continue to be work with them um, as we move through this next uh, variant of our COVID. So as I stated, um, there are a lot of moving parts in real estate right now, and it's a fast paced market, but here's how I wanna end. Consumers require education and a realistic expectation in this market. If you're gonna require financing, talk to a lender before you even start the house hunting process. Um, and I encourage you to use a local lender here and maybe even a lender with the Greater Hilton Head Mortgage Lenders Association. Um, they can help you with your credit score, various lending programs, counsel you on price point that you'll be qualified for. 
There are many programs out there, and I go back to the South Carolina Housing Authority, where there are so many assistance for first-time home buyers. So don't get discouraged by that. Others should speak with their financial advisor on what's the best financial strategy to reach your goals. When reading with a realtor, communication is key to a success, successful transaction. And you know they'll be the ones that will be able to help you through these multiple offer situations, assist you with deadlines, and educate you on the real estate market that fits your needs. So although our inventory is low, um, new inventory does come on the market every day. Um, so you just need to be ready to be signed on that dotted line. So it's real important to be ahead of the game and get yourself qualified and know your strategy as well. So with that, thank you, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity here to talk today. Gene, thank you for that guidance and great advice and very informative report. We really appreciate that. I have just a couple of questions for you. And the first one is coming from Sam. And Sam is asking, with the influx of out-of-town buyers, where are you seeing the majority of people moving from? So we don't have any real data on that. I can only tell you what my members have shared. Uh, we certainly see the Northeast coming. Um, you know, you're Massachusetts, Connecticut. Um, you also see people coming in from the Midwest, the Chicago area, and even California. Probably have been where I've heard the most. But don't forget our drive market. You know, Bill, you and I have talked many times how important our relationship is between the Realtor Association and the Chamber of Commerce, um, how really we work hand in hand. So many of our vacationers that have come here now suddenly decide this is the place for them. And so we do have that drive market too. You're Atlanta and you're even within South Carolina and Charlotte. Thank you for that, Gene. Uh, we have another question. It's coming from Denise. And Denise would like to hear about real estate development in the northern part of Hilton Head Island. And if you have anything that uh, you could share regarding that. So there are some areas that are being built out. You see there's some over in the Spanish Wells area, as well as down by Fish Hall. Those are some new developments that have come in. Um, I don't know particulars on those, but certainly those are some areas that have uh, had some growth in our area. You know, that's what we need right now is additional inventory. So we do need our builders to, to work hard at that and to, to um, get properties up. But certainly, you know, our inventory or our, our land mass is so small, what's left here on Hilton Head, uh, we're going to see most of, most of that development going out to the west in Bluffton and Hardyville. Gene, thank you so much, and uh, we appreciate you being with us this morning, and certainly a, a great update. Great. Thanks, Bill. All right. Thank you. Well, we appreciate you joining us today uh, on our next Teletown Hall. We look forward to having United States Senator Lindsey Graham with us to provide an update uh, from Washington, D.C., and also uh, another speaker would be Dr. Frank Rodriguez. Dr. Rodriguez, superintendent of Beaufort County Schools that I know we're all interested in hearing uh, an update from the school system. And then we'll also be looking forward to an update from uh, the town of Bluffton. So until then, I just ask you to please stay safe, be kind, and don't forget to love each other. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks everybody for listening to the Chamber Channel's Power Hour. We encourage you to tune in for future episodes. Never miss one by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. 